So, James, let's go over your defense. What defense? Quite the model citizen. Armed robbery, grand theft, assault, battery. Can someone tell me what the hell is going on? You are dead. So where am I now, then? Limbo. It's a neutral place between heaven and hell. There is no way that this low life's getting into heaven whilst I'm stuck here. When you die, you die. You're dead. End of story. That's it. Done. I trust you about as far as I can speak. You smell that? That's the smell of victory. Closer to hell. It's more like Jersey. This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. comic that I still read, Casper. Yeah, it was it was challenging, which was perfect. Wait, no. And you do this what I call the denial dance. Mr. Shearer, my friend my co-host, my trusted podcast producer. How are you doing, sir? Good, sir. How are you? Not bad. I had one of those like super lazy weekends where I think I slept more than I've been awake, so recharging my batteries. You? Uh, yeah, same. Uh, I had a nice relaxing day today. I did a little editing of uh, my other podcast. Uh, if anyone wants to check that out, it's called On the Road with Jim and Casey. <laughs> Here comes the sneak attack plugs. <laughs> Yeah, I was watching, so like last night, I think I watched about three or four movies and it was like going back in time because my wife's like, oh, you got to watch, uh, you got to watch some of these chick flicks. And I was like, oh my God, it's, you know, I guess you've seen enough of my shit movies. It's time. I'll pay you back with a chick flick viewing. And I watched like Emma. I don't know if you ever saw Emma. I've never even like, heard of that one. I'm way into Emma. I'm like, oh, this is good stuff. This is good. Um, it's an old uh, Jane Austen movie so, or story, so it's like, wow, I'm getting into the classics. Now, like, today I was flipping through some, like, even older things, like some of the old black and white things, like, just some of the terrible, like, yeah, this isn't bad cinema. And I'm like, wait a minute, yeah, this is terrible cinema. Like, this isn't my, I can't now start absorbing all this old classical stuff. So after we watched this Emma movie, we started watching Clueless. I'm like, have you seen Clueless? Of course. Paul Rudd's in that. I'm, I don't think I've ever seen it. So I'm sitting there watching this movie, and halfway through I go, wait a minute. And I'm a little high on my, got my medical marijuana card to keep me, you know, level on the weekends. So I'm like, uh, 
wait a minute, this, this looks a lot like Emma. And Amy starts laughing. My wife, she goes, yeah, it was based on Emma. And it took me a good, like, 45 minutes until I finally figured it out. I was like, I just saw the story, and then I saw it again with different actors, and it took me 45 minutes to figure it out. Wow, and so when was Emma made? Uh, this was actually a remake of one, I guess, earlier, before Clueless. I guess there was a version made with Gwyneth Paltrow. This one, I don't know who was in. I didn't recognize anybody in this new one, but it just came out this year, or oh. maybe in the last year. But I, there you go. So that's, that's the kind of night I, uh, weekend I had. No intelligence was used whatsoever. In fact, at one point, because I, I like joints, at one point, the cherry fell off my joint and into my shirt. So I yelled at my wife. I'm like, like, I'm looking at this thing burn, and I can feel it hurting. And I'm like, I don't know what to grab it with. I know I shouldn't grab it with my hand. That'll just get worse. So I take this plate because I had a little, you know, plate of pretzels next to me. I'm like, Amy, help, you know, get this off my chest and onto the plate. She comes right over and goes, oh, my God, and blows it into my shirt. <laughs> and it splits into like four pieces and now I'm getting burned even more. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I was like, I'm going to catch fire. So I'm thinking, I guess I just got to press my shirt in and, and smother the flames. And that hurt like hell. There, there must've been a better plan. If only I had a glass of water next to me, I'm always now going to smoke pot with a fire extinguisher. No, you just, have to be, you just have to be fast. Smart. You just got to grab it real fast and get rid of it. Put it out. I was scared. Don't be scared. It's just a little fucking fire. A little fire hurts. <laughs> I guess if, since you, if you never get your hands dirty. <laughs> <laughs> I have very soft hands, you know. <laughs> I haven't worked a real day in my life, so I keep the calluses off my hands. Therefore, I couldn't do anything but burn. Burn up. I would have ate that fucking fire. <laughs> You eat fire for breakfast. Oh, man. So we got a pretty good show today. Yeah, Lou Temple from, uh, he was, well, he's been in a ton of stuff, but a lot of people recognize him for, as Axel from The Walking Dead. But he's been in a bunch of Rob Zombie movies, uh, a lot of horror movies. Yeah, I, you know what? I never saw much of The Walking Dead. I remember when it came out because I'm a huge, you know, zombies fan. Like anything with zombies, I was into in the 80s and maybe most of the 90s. But when The Walking Dead came out, I don't know why. I thought the, the effects were amazing, but I could not stick with it. I was like, there are too many people. You have to have more people than zombies for me to like the movie and since I, or show. And since I never uh, got to see any giant zombie invasions, I never stuck with it. So I know I missed something good. So one day I will go back and binge it all. But it's still on the air, right? Because it... <laughs> People where I work are like, oh, yeah, this person died and this person died. Like, eventually, there's nobody left to right. die. So is it just a show of zombies, like, kind of hanging out together and missing the old days of humans? I'm going to be honest. I kind of fell off around maybe the fifth or sixth season. I don't I, – I believe it's still on television, but I'm not positive. Uh, you watch a spinoff? I, I started to watch the spinoff, yeah, Fear the Walking Dead. Yeah. I couldn't get into it really that much. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm missing there, but one day I'll get back to it. But, I, you know, I love horror movies. I know we talked a little last week about the Friday the 13th movie. And I'm thinking about different horror movies, and I'm thinking about how there's almost like classifications. Like, I'm not sure I'm a horror nerd because there's a lot of them I don't like. So tell me if you agree with this classification system that I'm coming up with on the fly. One, you get that kind of like revenge movie, right? The Jason movies, the Friday the 13th movies. 
all those assholes that picked on you in high school, all the girls that wouldn't spend any time with you, they all get killed in these movies. And you're like, yeah, good. That's what you get for not, you know, thinking I was cool. And that's the person who lives till the end. And then they get revenge and they kill the, the killer. So at the end, the killer always dies. That's what I like. It's a happy ending. It's a gruesome, <laughs> depraved, happy ending, right? And then you have these ghost movies. I can't get into these ghost movies. Everyone's like, have you seen The Conjuring and the Annabelle? And I'm like, no, because it's like the same movie. Yes, I saw Poltergeist. I don't need to see those anymore. Do you watch any of those? No. Yeah, I, people love them. And they must be so super cheap to make and they're just cranking them out by the millions. I mean, every time I turn around, there's a new ghost type movie. Yeah, not my, that's not my thing. No. I like the uh, I like the ones that you the, the revenge movies that you were talking about where the killer gets it in the end, but then they make eight more sequels after that. Well, you know they got to make more money. You never have enough money. Those are my favorite. The third type is really the ones I stay away from. That's just like murder porn. You know, it's just like how can I absolutely kill somebody? And there's really no story. I've seen some of those, and they're just gruesome. And Lou. Our guest is in a lot of the Rob Zombie films, and I like Rob Zombie a lot. Like I like his uh, his his eye for cinematography and his, you know his thoughts uh, or his creativity around you know what makes a good movie. But some of his movies are tough to watch. Like that falls into that that third category for me, where it's just just evil, angry, gross, just nasty, murderous for what type of movies? And I don't know. I can't get too into them. So I, I love all Rob Zombie's movies. I, I I really like them. I like those. I like those types of movies also. What do you, so the scene that Lou was in is definitely a memorable scene, right? It was in um, uh, Devil's Rejects. It was the one where you know he's walking with another guy, and and um, I'm blanking on the character's name. Uh, I'm also blanking on the actor's name. The actor that was in Chainsaw oh, Massacre Two, uh, and Repo, and all those. <clears throat> Bill Mosley. Bill Mosley. Yes. You know that scene. Like Bill Mosley is awesome in that, but he's. He's goddamn terrifying. Like, he looks like real life crazy. You know? When, when Michael Myers is walking around or Freddy Krueger's walking around, you're like, oh, there's, there's no way there's a, you know, a guy like that who, who could exist and, you know, get shot in the eye and get right back up. That dude freaks me the frig out, like, to a, to a real degree. Like, that's probably what most crazy people are like, and I never want to go outside and meet them. So I'm staying inside because, no, I don't need that shit in my life. I don't need Otis. Yeah, he plays a hell of a character, and uh, Lou plays Adam Banjo in that movie. They're, uh, he's in the band with Jeffrey Lewis, uh, where they're at the motel. I remember the scene so much because I remember it, you know, they got the drop on Otis, right? Because Otis was walking, he had a gun on the two guys, and Otis turns around and beats the shit out of both of them, <laughs> and shoots him, shoots Lou, and I'm like, yeah, you had to drop, dude. You were there. Like, you had him. How did you let this go? And I remember being mad at Lou's character and the other guy. And just being like, oh, the fuck? Why couldn't you take this guy out? Like, I'm rooting the whole time for Bill Mosley, Otis, to get killed. That's a weird way to watch a monster movie. That means he did a good job of playing that creepy character that you should have wanted to die because I he know. was... But it doesn't follow the normal rules of the trope. <laughs> You're supposed to kill all the people I don't like and then kill the bad guy who killed all the people. And I'm the only one who's supposed to live at the end. And I'm the la they call it the last girl because it's you know, in the old days was always a, a woman. So you were the last girl. I like to pretend I'm the last girl. 
But those so fucking movies, there is no last girl. They'd kill everybody. <laughs> Would you classify the the Evil Dead movies as uh, as like the revenge movies then? Oh, maybe there's a fourth category. Remember how we talked last week about how horror movies were were seen as like comedies? Like when Frankenstein came out, it was kind of a comedy because people would go, ah, and go, ah, after they <laughs> got scared. I don't know if that actually made it to the, I don't know if you cut that or not. But Evil Dead, I think, could be that sort of fourth like comedy horror. Like, let's just totally, like trauma. Like, let's just be way over the top and, and silly. Uh, the Evil Dead remake, I thought was, I, I thought it missed the mark because the beat was totally different. You know, if you're going to remake it, don't do it so seriously. Have a little bit more fun with it because that's what people, I think, really like about Evil Dead. Yeah, I never saw that. I never watched the remake. I really liked the show that they did, Ash versus the Evil Dead. Like, yeah. they really went over the top with the comedy in that. Yeah, yeah. No, it definitely had the spirit of, the, of what the Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness was about. Evil Dead 1, I, I think I saw in college because I remember it was the bloodiest movie at the time. Have you ever seen, uh, oh, what's his name? Peter Jackson. So the New Zealand director, he got you know, really well known for doing Lord of the Rings and you know, tons of big budget movies. If you go looking back into his filmography, he started out doing horror movies and his shit was over the top. So he had a movie called Dead Alive. Oh, there was one. I remember the cover was an alien giving the middle finger... Uh, it was a zombie and alien movie and it was just like complete gore and silliness and just like, what am I watching? Like, you know, I remember some old lady like uh, just grew up uh, with something on her face and it dripped into her coffee and then she drank. Like it was, it was just, just like, how much can you fucking handle? And as a kid, I'm like, this is great. This is so much fun. Now that I'm older watching that, I go, you know, like I can't do it. It's like being on a, on a roller coaster now. I get sick. So my taste of change and those movies aren't for, uh, for old farts, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, the, the new youngins now, I think they like the ghost movies. Yeah. I don't get the whole, I don't get the whole ghost movies. I mean, I've watched a bunch of them, but I don't know. It's not my, not my thing. What about Casper? Can you handle that? Uh, yeah, I like I'll give Casper a good, uh, good watching. He's a good lad. That's the only comic that I still read, Casper. <laughs> you read the Casper comic? <laughs> what about Ghost Dad with Bill uh, Cosby? <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> Fuck Ghost Dad. <laughs> you ever seen, talk about movies that are sort of wacky horror movies. You ever seen Killer Clowns from Outer Space? No, but I want to. You know, I go to a lot of these Comic-Cons and stuff, and the one... The one I went to, everyone was there from that movie. Like all the main characters were there, and uh, it looks it looks interesting. And they were get they were getting like huge crowds. That's one of those movies. It's like a, it's like a good, you know, whiskey. After years of fermenting, people start to really realize how good a, a movie it is because it's it's doesn't take itself seriously. It's got really funny special effects, great practical sp- effects, good comedy, maybe. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it seems to be a movie that people are definitely uh, checking out now. So I tried to get my son to watch that, and I was like, ah, you know, I do like that he goes to bed on time and doesn't get up in the middle of the night, so I don't want to fuck that up. But yeah, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. It's got to be on the streaming services somewhere. Is that uh, is that rated R? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, any movie where, where clowns shoot 
cotton candy guns at you and wrap you in cotton candy uh, cocoons and then drink with one of those like big funky 80 straws that used to loop-de-loop all over and drink your blood. Yeah, that better be rated R. I mean, <laughs> that's not great for like an eight-year-old or a seven-year-old. I'm going to try to download that. See, a lot of the problems, like I have a lot of these streaming services. Like I have Shudder that has like a lot of great old horror movies and stuff on it. But on the app, on my phone, you can't download the movies. Like you have to stream them. So like if I'm on the plane, if, unless I have internet, I can't watch stuff. Well, do you collect CDs? Nah, throw them out. We stream now. What do you want to keep them for? Because everything, oh, well, the streaming services all have those offline uh, functionality as well. I'm assuming you're talking about like actually having like an MP4 file or something. No, I'm talking about like on Shutter, like on Amazon Prime. I have the Amazon Prime app on my phone. Okay. There you can download movies to watch offline. Right, Netflix like, too. I thought they were all doing that. No, well, Shutter doesn't. Netflix does, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if Hulu does, but uh, Shutter, the one that I like the most, that has like a lot of the old horror stuff on it that I, that I want to watch, doesn't. Yeah. Man, my my mind went a different way. Uh, Deadpool was on TV the other day, and it's my wife's favorite movie. And uh, no, it's probably not her favorite movie. She loves Deadpool, <laughs> so she's like, "I got to get this on DVD." And I looked at her, I was like, "It's 2020. What are you going to do with the DVD? I don't even think I have a player anymore. Maybe the old PlayStation can still play it. Like, you just want to get this thing to put on your shelf and never look at, have it get dust. I do that. Well, I do that the, with everything. Toys, you're the collector, comic. right? I guess. I don't know. Collecting old DVDs. And then you get them signed if you go to a Comic-Con or something by one of the actors. That makes sense. But to, And I hear that, too. It's the same thing with music. Like People like to look at the, uh, the jackets, the art. You know, I get all that. I totally do. But I don't know. Is there good DVD art? Because all that content is so much more convenient than just stream online. Speaking of DVDs. So I ordered a DVD the other week. Well, actually, I ordered it a long time ago, but I just got it the other day. And I wanted to have it. Psycho Cop. Oh, did our, you? <laughs> our friend Robert Ray Schaefer. So I got this. And it almost reminded me of when Rags was talking about how he traded that, uh, his, his artwork for a DVD and there was nothing in it. It was, it was, it was the, mo it's the most bootlegged looking DVD that I've ever bought in my life, entire life. Because it was really bootlegged? Like, was it one it, of those ones that they sell at conventions illegally? It has to be. <laughs> There's nothing professional about it. Like yeah, the, man. like Robert Ray Schaefer is actually like, his face is actually like on the, what, what do you call like the, where, the, where it folds open? the seam yeah the seam yeah. like his face is there so you actually have to open it to see the to see the cover yeah well yeah that sounds like a bootleg <laughs> and, uh i used to go to new york city a lot in the 90s when i was a you know i was just about a teenager and they always had these guys on the side of the road selling bootleg versions of movies that weren't out yet right but they were like vhs and i remember i was so excited for the crow so i bought the the bootleg version and I got home and I popped into my VHS player. And could you imagine like the, the camera that this guy must have used, right? He must have sat in the back of a theater because you could see everybody getting up to get popcorn. Yep. It was over his shoulder, right? <laughs> 
everybody's getting up to get popcorn. You can barely see what's going on. It sounded terrible. So I could never get into bootleg stuff. I was just like, fuck that. I'll just wait till the, you know, the stuff comes out. The content creator, the, the they should get paid for the good stuff they're doing. I could throw yeah. a couple bucks for the cause, but that was my foray into bootlegs. Never really got into them. Yeah, this was actually the first one that I've, well, I didn't think that I was buying a bootleg, but it's <laughs> the first one that I've ever purchased. I get it if it's the only way that you can get content, you know, like if there's something that like the, the uh, Star Wars, have you ever seen the Star Wars special? <laughs> the 1980 no. or 1979 Star Wars special? No. It's probably on YouTube now, but it's like in the hype of Star Wars, they quickly threw together this, um, this special. And it, uh, what do they call those things? Like when you have a show that's got a lot of different acts, uh, a variety show. Yes. So it's a variety show around Star Wars. And man, this is bad. But like people didn't know that it actually existed. People heard rumors like, yeah, there's a special where uh, Princess Leia sings a song and she's high as fuck. No, that can't be true. And like going to conventions and stuff, once in a while I would see it and I was like, wow, this thing is real. So I get like maybe, you know, collecting some of those things that you weren't sure ever truly existed. But yeah, I don't know. Well, there's things like I would be interested in stuff like that. There, there was an old uh, like the original horror hostess, Vampira, or Vampira. Yeah, uh, I watched a documentary about her, and I never realized this, but shows that were on back then, when during her time, which was like I think, the, you know, the 30s and 40s, 50s. When they were broadcasting it on television, they weren't act, they weren't recording. Like nothing was recording. Like they they just all that stuff just vanished. Like a lot of it. Well, it was already recorded. They were only playing back the recording that they already had. They were no, broadcasting this a, the playback. No, hers was a live show that they would do. That they would do like they would broadcast live, and that was it. They would they weren't recording anything. Like so, there's there's mm-hmm. about like. 40 seconds of footage of her show that existed that exists. Yeah. I never knew all that stuff was live. Makes yeah. sense. There's, I know there was always stuff on TV when I was young, cause we're out of Philadelphia. We're out of that area. You're uh, we're in Reading now, but you know, we're close to Philly and I know like New York had a lot of stations, but they would run some horror stuff. And I guess it was that way. I guess it was all live sort of like public access, you know, early eighties, Wayne's world type productions. And I couldn't get them. I couldn't get them tuned in. But Philly didn't have a lot of that cool stuff. But, uh, you know, I would have enjoyed the hell out of that. I, I bet you I would have been watching that show. I know there's yeah. – um, we talk about the Chiller Theater Convention in New York. I think that was named after one of those type of shows. Maybe uh, – oh, I know one. Remember Ronda Shearer up all night? Like, that was probably live stuff now that yeah. I think about it. Yeah. So that was one that I watched, and she would just play these corny movies. Joe Bob, when he was on – was he on TNT? Or what yeah. was he on when he Monster was on? Vision. TNT, Monster Vision. So do you think that was live too? Uh, no, actually, Diana Prince, the male girl from his current show on Shutter. Yeah, she's in the process of she has a, a storage unit filled with those shows that she's in the process of uh, remastering so that they can be available for everyone to enjoy. That's pretty cool. Yeah, is it a contract with Shutter? Is that where she's going to put them? I hope so. I'm not sure. It hasn't really been announced or anything yet, so I'm not sure. But uh, our guest is in the waiting room, Bill, so I just wanted to ask you, do you have a light or something that you could throw on? Yeah, it's getting dark here, Casey. <laughs> Ready? Ooh, now i am got my horror light. Ooh. 
Yep. Let me take a break and I'll set that up and then we'll be right back with Lou Temple. Hey, Lou. Hi. How are you? You look different. Good. Hey, Bill and Casey. Nice. I'm Bill. That's Casey. Oh, that's cool. Thanks for having me. Where where do you gentlemen hail from? Where are you exactly? We're outside. Have you ever heard of Reading, Pennsylvania? It's the armpit of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I've been to Reading. It's not that bad. There's Look, there's worse places in Pennsylvania, I can tell you. You know, I did Unstoppable up in Bradford, Pennsylvania, which in and of itself is a very nice community because I ended up living there for a few months, so I got close to it. But if I was just driving through, I would say it's quite industrial and a little oppressed at that time. But what's cool is the Zippo Lighter Factory is there, as well as uh, Case Knives, which is uh, was really great to take a, uh, a tour and then kind of get to know the people that work there. But yeah, there's Redding's not the worst in Pennsylvania. I could name four places worse in Pennsylvania. Bradford being one. The only award <laughs> I think we won in Redding was like the highest crime rate. It was like, <laughs> we don't uh, want to be able to remember that. Well, We're, that just means you have a lot of good things to steal. <laughs> you, you folks, you folks are, are, uh, well sought after in your possessions. So, uh, love crime. That is a good line. I like that. Yeah. So, look, as a baseball guy, uh, Redding, for the longest time, had a double-A baseball team in the Eastern League, which I actually never played in. But I think, um, I think I've, I've seen a game there. That being said, I don't know that they still, of course, with everything in – how long has it been since Redding's had a team in the – double at minor leagues they still do they went from being oh. called the reading phillies to the fighting phils and i don't know why they took the phillies out of their name oh. it sort of hurt their business because people thought it was an extension of the phillies you know by brand virtue and they yeah. for some reason two years ago changed their name and now i never hear about them casey yeah. might know more than i do no i i don't understand why that well that phils is still in the name but i don't understand why they changed the the Team, it's fighting Phils now instead of the Reading Phillies. You know, I could, I could probably, or I could take a guess. And what I would say is that um, these minor league operations are, are small businesses and are struggling or fighting entirely hard to establish their brands, just like you are. And so they can't do a lot with the Phillies because they have to get clearance on everything they do. But the fighting fills allows them to have whatever promotions, throw out whatever merchandising and not share that with, with the Philadelphia franchise. You know, that's why these teams like the mud cats or the silver surfers, you know, every one of these teams now has sort of its autonomous brand so they can make the most of it. And, and actually, so they can, own licensing rights and if they come up with a cool emblem or a cool promotion maybe they strike gold yeah I, I thought it was a Phillies just saying you're not making us enough money I never thought it worked in reverse I'm sure they're trying to make it work in reverse and maybe they're the fighting Phils though I mean that's an old moniker from the 50s that that's what they used to call those Phillies because they were oh, a, I didn't even know that yeah back in the 50s the Richie Ashburn days, uh, Robin Roberts, that Philadelphia team was real scrappy. So that's what they called them, fighting Phils. And so different than your 1980s Phillies with the Lezinskis and the Mike Schmitz, the Sluggers. Not so, they didn't have to fight as hard tooth and nail. 
So maybe the fighting, the Reading fighting bills are trying to bring a little scrappiness into the game. Anyway. Better maybe, than the Reading armpits. So <laughs> Maybe the fighting Phils and the sheriff should get together and try to improve things. How about that? I think that's a good plan. Would Great. you like to run for mayor? It's funny you ask that because I was. I was in the town of Bradford for so long doing this movie, Unstoppable, and I had a lot of days off. So I was man about town. Hey, this movie guy's walking around, dropping into every shop. And I ended up making the tour where I'd stop in the local paint store, Sherman Williams paint store and have coffee with the owner. And then I'd drop over to a BJ's restaurant and, you know, have a sandwich. I've made all the stops. And at some point the civic committee commission council invited me to run for mayor against their local, which really kind of offended the local guy who was befriending me, Tom Leal. And he's like, are you running for mayor against me? And I'm like, I live in Los Angeles. And they had put a house up for me, this incredible home for myself and my family, which, it, which would be a money pit. They have these old estates there that are still like heated by coal. <laughs> you know, and so you can imagine in the winter, what that's like and you know six stories how do you heat a house that's six stories you know you know how cold it gets in the winter oh yeah, um, oh, yeah. but you're not as you're not as cold as say erie right because you're not at that close to the lake no no i guess erie would be colder yeah the more north you go yeah because pittsburgh's usually colder than philly so yeah so you get you guys are and, and so but uh, one of my best friends lives outside of Philly in Drexel Hill. Drexel Hill. Yep. So that's a nice little suburb outside of Philly. Uh, I teach at Drexel University sometimes. Oh, see? That's pretty great, right? You'd think I'd know something about lighting, but I don't because <laughs> I lost well, all my light today. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, that could happen here quite easily. We're getting a, our own little heat wave, which is, uh, let's call it, mid-90s. For Los Angeles is hot enough for us fair weathered folk to drop our air conditioning. Everybody just clicks it on full run, so we could we could shut down our grid pretty easily. So maybe you're maybe that's happening in ready. Maybe you guys are all burning your AC. <laughs> no, it's just we usually do them a little bit sooner, and I and I know because I have a big window here. It gets darker as we do these interviews. This is the darkest it's been since we started, so I was not prepared. <laughs> oh, here. So maybe I was like, are we forecasting fall? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Dang. Because we're still in the height of summer, let's be honest. It's going too fast. It doesn't even feel like summer. Casey and, likes to put these on YouTube, and I'm always, uh, he's always like, you're not looking good enough on, on the old YouTube. And school's starting soon. Uh, at least here, my daughter went back to school last week. I mean, that's, that's blasphemy, right? It's, I think we didn't used to go back to school until after Labor Day, first of September, and she went back August 13th. Wow, that's the earliest I think I've heard. Yeah, and, and right here on this screen, that's where she spends a certain part of her day. I give the school a lot of credit because they try to get them off the screens as much as they can, so they're not just doing a Zoom conference for six hours, but, you know, they do have to. And the teachers, again, are, are attending to that. But I'm curious on, uh, is school back face-to-face -face on the East no. Coast where you are? No? No, we're, we're getting kind of uh, 
lackadaisical about it. Now, you know, it's kind of surging back up here and everything that started to open just closed back down again. But we have a lot of people that are just sort of opening things and not allowed to, or they're just a Yeah, It's hard once you, uh, I think it's very difficult when you give the uh, free pass to, you know, the the horses out of the barn, it's hard to get it back and go, whoa, 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 we might have jumped the gun. I'll screw that, that we, you know, we're not buying it because we made 20 bucks today and tomorrow we can make 40. So let's, let's try to keep it, keep the till moving. It's frustrating. I don't even, I can't, begin to, you know, feel what a lot of small business owners are, are feeling and, and experiencing. And th- that experience is, has got to be terrifying for sure. Yeah. But the alternative is people getting sick, the spikes, the, uh, you know, and we're just now heading into, you know, the fall. So, both of you are, are uh, well-bearded. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the style now. Well, it is. Now, I, I so, know you had one. Where'd it go? Oh, yeah, so that's my point. I'm getting to that. The very first thing they said is, wash your hands, don't touch your face. I don't know about the two of you, but I'm always raking my stuff. You know, I'm always, I'm always trying to mold it, and I'm always playing with my face. And I realized, wow, that's, me. that's what I'm going to do. That's what I do on a good day. I mean, I, you know, so if I, I got to get rid of it. So I immediately went down to the clean shave and I've grown it back and shaved it off too. But, uh, but so you guys, you're, you're not, you're not playing with your beards. You're not doing that. Twirl it. I do that. I haven't seen my chin since I've been 16. Okay. So I always, I always play with it all the time. Yeah. Yours is well groomed. <laughs> I try. Yeah, we just talked to Richard Reilly. We talked to him oh. last week, and he's got a he's got a massive beard now. God, that's so great. Quarantine maybe, beard. Maybe yeah. he should do Santa Claus. You know, he told us he played Santa Claus fifteen times. That is fantastic. <laughs> uh, I would love to. I, I can't think of having seen him as Santa, but I I so want to. So I'm going to kind of. Do you, Do you know any specific? Movies uh, do you know if he played Santa Claus in that 12 Dogs of Christmas bill? Was that? Mm, I didn't see that one. that one. I'm not sure, but. I brought it up and I thought it was a cute family movie. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's a, that, that was a grisly murder movie. And I was like, what? what? Yeah, <laughs> well, you never know with Richard. So the great thing, as you know, how sweet he is and how kind. And it's really, it's really dark when you you least expect it from him but for the most part it's so delightful and comforting with him because he's so charming he's so sweet and he's adorable one time i was sitting in an audition uh it was around the holiday season and (laughs) i was with louis anderson in the audition room (laughs) the comedian yeah and uh he was auditioning for santa and i think i was auditioning for an elf go figure and um, he said, you know, I never get to audition for the Easter Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you got a point. I'm sure you could pull it off, Louie, but uh, think Santa right now. Think Santa. And I wonder if Richard's ever done the Easter Bunny. Uh, so he's, he's great, though. Possible. I don't think he's there's correct. a role left for him. I mean, he's done every damn character you can do, every type. He's, he's been, how many, he's been in like 400 some things. Yeah. You've been in a lot, too. He's been in so many. This was the, I think this is the first time we had worked together. 
we had actually spoke. This is stuff you should record uh, if you're, or uh, th- this would be a story regarding yeah. limbo. Whole thing's uh, on. He'll chop it all up, and this is this okay. is what he does for the rest of the week. Is edit all this. So the more we talk, the more we give him work. Okay, okay, here you go. Uh, so uh, I work with Mark Young, the writer director of Limbo, quite often. This was actually our fourth project together. So I usually read everything he writes, and he's a prolific writer. I mean, he might write a script a month, and they're all really in the wheelhouse of what I like. They're, they're right in my taste because they're, they're kind of outside the box. They're suspense, they're smart thriller. Uh, there's a hidden message. Um, he, his, his voice speaks to, you know, kind of my ear. So I probably read Limbo first before anyone. And, and I was like, yeah, courtroom drama for your soul, 12 angry men, for your soul. I like this. This is great. And so we start talking about, okay. And so I read it and I said, well, yeah, I think I'd really like to take a swing at Balthazar because he's this, you know, this hard boiled old bedraggled guy that's on a job that's jaded. And, and he said, you'd be great. He said, no doubt you'd be perfect. But I'm thinking instinctually, I might like to go a little younger, no offense, and bring someone in that has all those things, but in a kind of a younger veneer and has a certain amount of teen angst or daddy issues. But along the lines of that conversation, and then also he offered, and by the way, Lou, I wrote Jimmy sort of for you. And I go, Oh, of course you did. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. I'll do that. But we talked about Richard doing Balthasar is my, where I'm going with this case. And because he could totally do the, you know, the Lou Grant, you know, Mary, he could totally do the grumpy. But that being said, there's a certain twinkle in his eye. And that's so charming as you both know, having had him on, he's, He's, he could have done any of those roles. So we just thought that Phil was really good because we did need the, we need to lighten it up. And he did so many jokes that were scripted, but then he brought a lot of his own in as well. And some actually made the movie. Uh, and there were a lot of jokes that he told <laughs> that didn't make the cut, but were fantastic. You know, he would bring in the real funny stuff actually didn't make the movie, unfortunately just because it kind of didn't set the tone. But, yeah, he's hilarious. He's fantastic. I'm pretty sure he told us last week that he did that it was all scripted. <laughs> I think we have a controversy yeah, that's, here. That's what he would say, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, had, he had brought in some of his own, because I was like, wait, if that's the punchline, I, I'm laughing at that one. Mark, you wrote that? He goes, I didn't write that. Because <laughs> you're not that funny, Mark. <laughs> but, Richard... You mentioned the kind of roles that you look for. I think that I think uh, Limbo had one of those surprise endings that I'm pretty good at sniffing them out, and I didn't catch that one. And that was like an entire narrative shift. Yeah, did you know that is when you were reading the script. Did you did you know uh, no. that that was going to be how it ended? No, I thought that we were going through the you know the, the you know don't judge a book by its cover. He who throws. Uh, rocks at glass houses. I thought we were, you know, telling that story. If you're asking me in my first read. Uh, no, I was like you, Bill. I, di- I didn't see that coming. And so when it spun, 
I was like, wow, that reveal, I was like, oh, it's even better now. So I loved that. I adored that. And it was really important for us to set that up without indicating it was coming. Some will say, oh, I saw it. But uh, thank you for owning up to you. You had me. Uh, because that's important for what we were trying to do. And I thought it was so great that the, the script in itself is challenging for all manner of reasons. I, I really appreciate that Mark continued to keep me focused on what my restrictions were in limbo, in the purgatory, because my character, Jimmy is a violent man with propensity to hit and to maim and to, to fight his way out of situations. And why wouldn't I grab this kid and just rough him up and let me out of here? And why wouldn't I throw stuff? And why wouldn't I, you know, get rough and get ugly? And he said, you know, you get to do that a little in the real life, but here in purgatory, that all those things are removed. You actually are really restricted from that. So, so I had to act out at, through other means and other emotional conveyances like bewilderment where am i who are you disbelief incredulous bullshit what your angels what really to seeing horns and being a little unnerved by that to getting engaged in the trial to being rather ashamed present much a pretty picture but maybe a glimmer of hope you know, these were all things that were combined, confined in that space, which were difficult. And I give Mark a lot of credit for uh, shot, changing shot compositions, making a little dynamic. Every time we got up, we, we recognized that we've been over in this corner. If I move to that corner, is it the same move that I, you know, did two pages earlier? So and there was a scene, if you remember, with the hooker with the heart of gold, Angela, and her manager, uh, where it looked like he and I were going to hook, we were going to get into it. And there was a lot of restraint there. And that really was a great scene for me to experience because that was something that I took or had all the way in, in that limbo environment. So yeah, it was, it was challenging, which was perfect. That's exactly what, what we all want to do. Yeah. The, uh, I'm always curious too, because in the beginning, and, and I'm very careful not to give anything away, you know, you're walking down, well, I've got to be careful because I don't want to give anything away, but you shot in LA. It, it was clearly mm. LA. And I've always wondered about when you're making a movie, you're, I know it was a smaller film because we spoke with Richard. Robert, Richard, gosh, I can't believe I was to edit that for me, Casey. <laughs> I know it was a smaller film because we spoke. Santa Claus. You spoke with, you spoke with Santa spoke Claus. With Santa Claus. Times, never the Easter Bunny. How do you do shoots like that on the streets? Do you, do you find, I'll give it this way. Was it a pawn shop? Do you, do, yeah. do you rent the pawn shop from the owners? Do you block the streets? How do you control people not ruining your production? That's a great question. We did rent the pawn shop. Mark paid for the pawn shop. And he got it at a discount rate because our budget was restricted. And in that discount rate, uh, there, there, there was a disclaimer. If uh, you know, if I got some business, maybe we could share the space. So, in other words, the owner was like, "I'm gonna keep it closed, but if someone shows up and I got a chance to make a buck, or he's gonna bring back, you know, 
give me a little moment. So we actually had people walking in and out is what I'm trying to say. We did own it, but we shared part of that ownership. So it was very interesting. It's the same pawn shop exterior that Tarantino used for Pulp Fiction on the, on the front end. So it's right in the middle of Hollywood. I shot part of that scene where I'm exiting the building and I am exiting the building with a pistol and a bag of cash. Legitimately, there's no lockdown in the streets. It looks a little dodgy to be sure. And we saw people with their cell phones taking pictures of me, all kinds of troublesome uh, to the point where the cops did come and we, we showed our permit and it was like, okay, well, why aren't you locked down? Well, we can't afford to lock down Hollywood Boulevard here, but we're just getting stealing. And he's like, okay, well stay inside. That's what your permit is permitted for. Not to, you know, so none of that stuff really landed. It wouldn't, I mean, at the point when you hold the place up, you don't need to see the exit. You get it. Getting back to this, the film, one of the other things that was challenging was that we didn't have a lot of time. It's a small film, but it looks really great. It's really lensed well. Christos, our DP's golden. So it's got a lot of mood to it in the lighting, the art direction in, in the limbo is, is really specific. What we didn't have was time to rehearse a lot like this. And so we, um, we had to make sure, I say we, Mark and his casting director, Shannon McCainian, had to make sure that they were bringing in talent that was um, kind of push play. People like Richard that you just can count on or you just know they're going to bring guacamole for the chips, you know, and you just know they're going to bring something great to the party. And you're not because you don't have the time to rehearse. And there's a real delicate balance because it's really a talking headpiece in some places. So you, you do need some pacing, you need some rhythm, you need some, you know, some, some music with it. And uh, we really focused on bringing in players that were self-contained that could, could bring that and provide that. And so I'm so pleased with everyone that came in. We, we just, it just, knocked it out of the park each time, you know, each one of those people that came in as witnesses, we, you know, kind of like guest stars, but they were all brilliant. They were all, and they all were diverse and different. And they, they came in and did their thing. And it was also great because we'd been sitting in that room doing the talking head thing for a couple of days. And then it was great to have someone new. Oh my gosh, this is great. Fresh blood. So it, it was lovely. And the people we brought in were amazing. Veronica Cartwright, as, lo as well as Richard. Come on. She's gorgeous. Just amazing. You know, there's, there's actors that have amazing eyes just in, just in physicality without doing anything with their eyes. And then there's ones that have amazing eyes and can do a lot with their eyes. She's, she's both. She has amazing blues. And they're really powerful and they can be very gentle or very steely. And she can really use them. And it was, man, it was a real gift. So she's great. Meg Foster is another actor that's like this. You, you guys know Meg? 
I do. Well, not personally. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good point. It seems to me that the best actors are the ones that can really talk with their face. It's not so much about the inflection of their voice, but you have to own it with the camera right up to you. I'll see, I'll see actors sometimes. And it's like, well, you delivered that fine, but it's not memorable. The face has to sort of work with the dialogue. And everybody, yeah. you're right, everybody in your film was spot on, delivered really well, and had expression. And I appreciate yeah. that. I think there's, when you bring something a little more, when you, when you know it's enough and then you push a little bit farther, it's, uh, it's fear. You know, my favorite thing, my favorite thing in acting is what I call discovery. And that's like what I do right here in my office in building. I like, I like getting the role or preparing for an audition, preparing to go meet a director on a role and going through the script and discovering who this person is because there's so much that's not on the page and there's so much in research and development that you find out. And that's my favorite thing. But lately, as I'm becoming more experienced in the last several years, I've recognized I really enjoy in the moment watching other actors. I really enjoy watching them in a scene and how they navigate essentially fear. We're all afraid on a camera. We're all afraid of getting caught. We're all afraid of telling the truth. We're all afraid of getting caught in a lie. Uh, we're afraid of, of not being good enough or being too good or I want to hold a little something back. I don't want to give it all here or, you know, I don't know. I'm lost. Whatever it is. And I love whether it's Denzel Washington or Veronica Cartwright or Scotty Thompson, there's a certain, in that moment, there's just this little hint of fear, which is really a good thing. Sometimes it's really good to be afraid in the moment on camera, as long as you have a little bit of control of it. If you're afraid and, and it ruins you, then that's going to not make it. But I'm really enjoying that part of it, and especially young actors like young even, even watching DiCaprio uh, recently, I got to be around on, on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he or Brad Pitt, you could still see it. You could still see just a little bit. Oh, shit. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what I'm doing. Holy cow. Okay. It's great, man. It's uh, Johnny Depp. It's, it's, it's really a lot of fun. You know, I shouldn't say that, but, uh, and I reckon, I'm sure that it's, it's there with me as well. You know, I, I know it is. So once upon a time in Hollywood is one of my all time favorite movies just, and it's only brand new because of that. I was able to sort of watch them behind the scenes and that's not what we usually get to see. Is that a fair uh, depiction of what it's really like behind a movie set? Yeah. And the only difference is, you know, we didn't talk a lot about it because there was a lot of work to get done. And again, I'm a pimple on an elephant's ass in that movie. I mean, I'm barely in it. and Most of my stuff was cut, but I'm thankful to have been there and to have watched and to have been selected. It was like being a, a Reading Phil fighting Phil invited to the all-star team. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be invited, but you're not going to get to play much essentially. But I'm thinking about Leo, you know, and he's doing this role and he's never, probably experienced the rise and fall, just the rise with this guy. There's guys who have definitely experienced 
the fall and risen back, you know, even Brad maybe fallen a little bit. I don't know who Leo ever has. So when they're doing this guy, which most of us have in our own way have sort of experienced, you know, where you're like, okay, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, Oh man, I'm right back where I started from. There's the fall or what happened. You know, oh, how the mighty have fallen, my wife likes to remind me. So I don't know if you put a guy in there who's actually, but I thought Leo did great. But Quentin scripted great. Quentin knows these guys. Quentin knows these, these players that have had, you know, that have flown with the, the eagles and he's, he understands what it's like to be grounded in the mud, you know, have your wings clipped and be slogging through the mud trying to, you know, find your flight again and um, holding your wings out and waiting for the wind to come and pick you up. And, man, it seldom happens. And all the guys that, that were cowboy actors that would hang around Gower Gulch at the time in Hollywood waiting to kind of get picked up into the, the studio fray those were all the guys we were playing and, and fighting for our little moment with the star. And that's, that is true. That is true. You know, you're just your, your little 15 minutes in the sun and, and you're always trying to, you know, figure out how, well, you know, if I'm here, he's probably going to come by and I'll do something and maybe it'll make the movie, you know? So it, it is really interesting, you know, and working with uh, Jeffrey Lewis in the devil's rejects, it was great. He played my partner, Roy Sullivan, and we would go for walks in between takes. And you know, he talked to me, he said, you know, when you're working with the, you know, the lead in a movie always puts your hand on his shoulder when you talk to him. That way you'll never get cut out of the movie. It's <laughs> 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 just like, that's brilliant. Uh, right, Case? You edit. So it's hard to edit somebody with a hand that right there. Right. Uh, which is, you know, those are old school Hollywood tricks, you know. A lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah. What's the difference between working with somebody like, uh, or even just seeing the style of Quentin Tarantino, who's got this sort of visionary approach and he's got a lot of money to do the stuff. Right. And that you've done some films with, with Rob Zombie, who yeah. also has an has a absolute unique vision. And yeah. I'm sure he doesn't have that Quentin Tarantino money. What, what kind of, what's the same and what's different in those kind of productions? The same is they're storytellers at the end. They're storytellers and they must tell their story. They must tell their story. They're not looking uh, I hope I tell my story. They, they are telling their story regardless. And it, it comes first. And they are uh, they're in control of that story being told. So I always say about Rob Zombie, whom I've worked with a lot, four times as well, he knows what he wants and he wants what he knows. Quentin, I've only been with um, this one time and have met him, but I was with him you know, for three weeks and I got to watch. And he totally knows what he wants. And he totally is going to get it. There's one voice uh, on set and it's his. He doesn't mind collaboration, but he definitely is bringing an idea to how this is going to go. So much so that he shoots with one camera. Nobody, there's no monitors. You're not checking your work. He lets you know if it's good. You don't go back and go, ah, I think I, I don't, you know, I could do better here or there. He'll let you know. 
and it's great. It's brilliant. And so they definitely have a style. Um, what I like, what I, I've had a chance to watch Rob kind of grow a lot over the years as a filmmaker. And I, I like that he's continued to take chances and continue to grow his style. And so when he started, he was still getting a feel for it. You know, he's a performer. If you've seen him on stage, he is a performer, man, like more than most of us. So he gets it. He knows what a performance is. Uh, the things I like about him, for instance, if something doesn't work or there's a take that's broken because someone forgot their line or said it wrong or the camera didn't move right, he'll shut that shot down. Let's switch cameras. Let's switch lenses. Let's shoot it entirely different. wasn't meant to be. Let's go. I like that he, he, he's able to scrap stuff and, and move on. Quentin definitely has an idea about how he wants the specificity of the movement of the film. And he's, he's really big. So, for instance, he would, he would come off of Corey's face, that yellow lighting off the face, and then he's going to pick me up in on the two shot. He's, he's really big about staggering two shots and moving off them on the entrance of another character. So he's really shot composition savvy. The other thing with Quentin, you've got to be really on your toes. He carries a yellow notepad, legal pad. He'll write a monologue any given moment and might just rip it and throw it at your character. So you've got to be ready to, to pop. And it's not something where you're going to go, oh, let me go back to my trailer and work on this. He, because that's not that moment's not going to be there. He's not going to make a moment for that. It's here it is now. You can do it or you can't. Let's go. So you got to kind of get that. And it's a real big energy on set. There's a uh, there's a peacock. You, you know, you've got to kind of raise up. So actors that are rather subtle, it's it's harder for them because he's looking for you know. Think about his movies. He's looking for big feathers, big dances, and shining and bling and chewing scenery. You know, so you got to kind of puff up and be, you know be seen and heard and, and so it's it's really interesting so the two of them are great storytellers difference between the two of them uh, obviously i think quentin uh recognizes that he can do anything and have anyone at his disposal and i think rob is still rather honored for anyone to come to set and be part of his not that quentin's not quentin's very He's very respectful, as is Rob, of, of the process. They're both intense. Rob's probably a little more intense. Rob's got a little, little, little bit more. Yeah, like, you know, uh, hey, Lou, I want you to, I don't want you to, I want you to hold the knife like this. Fucking, you know, I want you to, you know, uh, Quentin is going to get you, he's going to lead you to that. Rob's going to show that I don't have time to, you know, I don't have time to grab ass here. We're going to get to that place. So he might be a little intense. Uh, Quentin is a story. Quentin is uh, going to tell a story between every take. He's got a story about something that happens in every moment of the day. <laughs> so he might tell like a hundred stories a day that the whole set gets to listen to and be part of. So it's kind of story time when you go to work for, for Quentin. He's the storyteller. Yeah. Makes sense. The piece that I like about all of them, both of them, is they aren't 
afraid to try something different. You admit, said that earlier. I'm a fan of Halloween. I like the Halloween remake. I know, you know, obviously yeah. you're in the Halloween remake. And I always think about the beginning and you because this is the time uh, as a big Halloween fan throughout the years. This is the time where you've seen the most of Michael Myers and you see him without the mask on and you see him sort of just the unwell person he is. And I know when John Carpenter created Michael Myers, they called him the shape. He was never supposed to be a person. He was never supposed to be a soul thing. And what I thought was really kind of gutsy was Rob said, we're going to explore the person before the shape. And that hadn't been done before. And you were the guy that really kind of fucked them up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, You know, we were trying to be entirely respectful of Mr. Carpenter's brilliant work for sure. Weren't trying to, trying to, you know, homage to him. And, but Rob did want to give him a person. That's the truth. And where that person came from, starting from a childhood. And, you know, some people didn't, react well with that because as you said he was always going to be the shape so for my guy it was really about controlling that as little guys tend to want to control big guys in the you know sort of a power setting particularly in that confinement that prison setting psychologically if i can get this guy under my thumb if i can get him to do some things that are bad the way i'm going to do things that are bad i got that on him and i can lead him through that now i've got him and even if i make him do something that isn't moral and even worse if i do something to him that isn't moral so these are all things coming to my character's psych- psychological warfare I want to control Michael Myers at the end, this big dummy, this guy, this, you know, this killer, this mass murder, whatever, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get you under my thumb. I'm going to, you're going to come in here and rape this girl with me. And then you know what? I'm going to rape you. I'm going to sodomize you when it's all done because I'll be the boss. And that was the motivation of Noel Cluggs, you know, going way back to daddy issues and problems in his childhood that weren't very far from unlike my Michael's. I think the thing that happened with the Weinsteins, oddly enough, <laughs> we talk about this now, when they saw the first cut where we're raping the young lady, the patient uh, in the asylum, they were worried about the offending the female audience. And I totally understand it. I didn't like it because we'd worked so hard to do that. So they, they came to Rob and they said, we'd like to do something different on his escape. And Rob said, no, this is how it goes. And he's, they just said, look, we want to, want to buy you a new scene, whatever you want. So Rob, you know, at some point you acquiesce and, and he made another alternative, but on his director's cut, I think the, the, the rape scene is the scene that that sets him free. And that was really hard work that we took two days, a closed set. Uh, It was beautiful. He he used a a young lady that he had used uh, with the Tarantino Rodriguez um, grindhouse. If you remember, they had built these these little coming attractions. And he had the SS werewolf women. Werewolf women. Right, right. Yeah, and this was one of the girls that um, that they were operating on. She was totally naked. So you know, so basically, it's a closed set, uh, really uncomfortable. 
actions that we're, we're doing. And so trying to do as much, be as respectful as possible. Myself and Courtney Gaines, who's playing my cousin, the other actor, and of course, uh, Tyler Maine playing Michael Myers. It was really hard work. So I was not just hard, but it was emotional and it was unpleasant. It was ugly. So <laughs> I was frustrated when the Weinsteins saw it differently, though I understand. And happy, though, that Rob kept it in. Funny, interesting, one of uh, Danny Trejo plays a partner in that scene with me, Ismael. Ismael. And I'm really racist and hard on him entirely. In my own, or at least I'm thinking, he's just, you know, he's just keeping it cool. <laughs> so Danny and I have been friends for a long time. In fact, when I moved to Echo Park first time, I had Danny drop me off so that the local jefes, you know, in, uh, in, in the, Mi Vida Loca would, would be cool with this, uh, this whitey. And so, but, uh, so Danny and I were a couple days on set working the front of those scenes. And he was telling me about like how to use the bathroom in prison. You know, like you don't want to get caught with your pants down. You know, because that's when you get shivved because you can't run. They're around your ankles. And I was like, ah, right. That's the old saying. Don't get caught with your pants down. You go in, you hang your trousers up. Uh, you know, you do your business and you take them and you put them back on. So I made it a point that when Michael Myers was going to take action against me, that my wife, from me having been getting busy with the, uh, the, 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 the patient, my tidy whities were going to be around my ankles so that I would trip and he would catch me. So I got that from Danny Trejo, uh, but who, by the way, has an amazing documentary out about his life. If you haven't seen it, it's really great. Oh, wow. No. What's that called? Yeah. Uh, it's called, uh, I think it's called the rise of Danny Trejo. Oh, nice. It's really yeah. great. I would like to see that. Yeah. I actually emailed uh, his uh, manager to try and get him on our, on the show. Let her know that I did it because we have the same, and I'll put a good word in. Gloria, right? Gloria Hinojosa. Gloria Hinojosa. Hey, one last thing before I forget about Rob and Quentin. Both of them are enthusiastic fans. They're fans first of, of the industry. They're fans of the genre, not just their genres, but all genres. They know movies exceptionally well they have a great recall of movies they 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 know movies they like they recognize movies they've seen them all they've seen them all two or three times they're like y'all they they analyze movies so so they both make movies that they would like to see and i think that lands they don't make movies that they think other people would like to see they make the movies they want to see which are the movies they grew up with and it's it works yeah, absolutely. So a couple couple last questions for you. I got to ask you about The Walking Dead. You yeah, man. Axel on The Walking Dead for eight eight episodes. When you get cast to, to play a character on The Walking Dead, do they tell you right off the bat you're playing eight episodes or are you do you get this, this script every week and you're wondering, wow, you know, is this going to be my last week on the show or? No, you're actually brought in and you're, you're so invited and they make you feel really welcome that you're going to be on the show for a long time. You're, you might replace the sheriff, Rick. We're thinking, you know, I mean, 
So you're brought in with a huge amount of enthusiasm and excitement. And you're not, it's not talked about you're only going to be here for a few episodes or you're going to die. I mean, on that show, it kind of goes without saying, but it's not talked about. It's not, it doesn't precede you. It's sort of an afterthought. And all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, I could. And so you're just cruising along. And then all of a sudden the showrunner calls you and says, hey, you're going to take a bullet to the head. And you're like, what? Wait, no. Uh, and you do this, what I call the denial dance. You know, uh, come on, have that guy, Alan. He's an asshole. Don't, don't shoot Axel. But then you, you, you do commit to it. You recognize that it, it must be, and you want to honor your character. So you, you want to do a good job in his, uh, departure which you know i was really happy and thought they did uh they asked me if i had any thoughts and i said no you guys are great look i just would say if we can they first asked me if i wanted to reanimate and come back as a walker and i said absolutely no i don't want to go through the makeup of being why so you know so carl can come steal my mustache to impress beth no um so I said, I remember, I think, like what seeing these Bruder tapes of the Kennedy assassination, how shocking it was on a headshot. That might work. And so they, they, they were able to pull that off really great. And I was really proud of what we were able to do. I had been in for The Walking Dead on, from the, for the pilot for the role of Merle, actually, to read. And the casting people knew me and, and thought that would be a good run. And thankfully, they hired Michael Rooker. And then weeks later, I came in. They invited me in to read for Merle's brother, who doesn't have a name yet and doesn't have any lines. Just read Merle's lines again, different. And thankfully, they hired Norman Reedus to play Daryl. And then when Axel came around, they kind of knew me. I was doing The Lone Ranger at the time for Disney, so I had that mustache and I was afraid they were going to make me shave it because the, the Disney film was going forever. And we were kind of balancing a schedule. And they're like, no, we love the mustache. We need, come on, do it. So I, I was happy to be able to do Axel, yeah. But no, they don't tell you, oh, it's going to be eight episodes and done. They're like, yeah, we think you're going to be here for a while, longer than what you ever are. You know, you you're, you uh, you feel like you might be the the lead of the show when you get hired. I got to think that that's a real uh, challenging thing to deal with. Cause you know, it, this is your career and you want to have future, you know, jobs when you think that you're committed to something and then you show up one day and it's like being fired from, you know, any job, but they, it seems like they put a spin on it. It's an artistic firing because your character, it, it like, it really is good for the viewer, but that can't be great for you as an actor. That's yeah. You, you feel like, Oh man, I'm, you know, I just, I just paid for the swimming pool. Now I'm not going to be able to put any water in it. It's going to be a skateboard ramp. Damn it. You know, you're in my case, I was told three weeks in advance. And like I said, you know, you try and talk them out of it. I was fortunate that a lot of the cast was really supportive of me. You know, Andrew Lincoln went to bat for me. And we just got painted into a corner where they, they had to draw some blood with the governor's arrival so that he wouldn't be impotent and impotent. And so that's how it went. So you want to, like I say, do a good job. I don't think it's easy for you 
but it's also not easy for the cast. You know, you're a teammate and you're one of the guys that they rely on. You're part of the team and it's anybody that loses one of their, one of their players, their regulars, shoot, how are we going to replace that? What are we going to do? We were just kind of getting good. We had a little streak. We had a little run going. So it's hard on everybody, really, uh, emotionally and physically and psychologically. It's, it's, it does wear on you. And just like any loss does in real life as well. But I think this show works because everybody cares so much and everyone cares for, for each other. There's a huge respect amongst, there's no hierarchy. Uh, when I was there, all roads led to the sheriff, all roads led to Rick Grimes and Andrew Lincoln was our goat. He was our Tom Brady and you know, he carried the ball and delivered every, every time. So, and you know, that baton gets passed down through the generations and I think it still lives today. So I was very happy and proud to be on it. And obviously it's incredibly an incredibly visible show. You know, I mean, I, at the time I wasn't thinking that it would be so popular. I had no idea. I'd done a lot of stuff, but I, I've never experienced anything like that. Yeah. You did a great job, man. It was a uh, thank you to see you go on the show. Yeah. That was, that's uh, the damn governor. Uh, <laughs> so to, to wrap it up, I have one final question and it kind of brings us back to the beginning of the conversation that I probably will use most of, uh, most of what we talked about in the beginning. Yeah. You seem to have a large knowledge of baseball. You oh were, yeah. Dude. You were in the minors yourself and I see you're even, you're holding the ball there. And the... I always have a ball. I'm like, uh, I'm always, you know, I'm always about a ball in my hand and, you know, I didn't come up with this saying, this is Jim Bowden, for all those years that you played, you gripped the baseball, but when you're done, you understand that it was the baseball that gripped you. Not my quote. That's from Ball Four, Jim Bowden's book. So do you want to tell us, talk a little bit about your baseball career? How did you, um, how did you transfer from, from baseball into acting then? That was my first love. Since a little boy, I played all the way through Little Leagues and, you know, high school and then got to go down to Florida and play on a scholarship at Rollins College, then got drafted and went out and played in the minor leagues with the Seattle Mariners and then traded to the Houston Astros and finished up playing and became a coach where I would, you know, help other younger players, which is just daycare. And I, I was like, I think there's better options than this. And then they offered me an opportunity to go scout to look for players around the country, which was really great because I, I learned to project talent and I learned to see and observe and evaluate, I suppose. And then they said, well, you got, you know, you've got some moxie or you've got some business acumen. Come into the front office and learn about being an executive. And so I'm in Houston and, and thinking, you know, my career's on the rise. I've got a salary, an expense report, a company car, traveling. I'm single, and I, I see a girl in Houston, and I follow her into a uh, acting class, chat her up for a date, and I see these people on the stage, and I'm like, wow, look at that. I, I could do that. Well, I, I couldn't do that. But I, I look to go learn how to do that by going back to college in New York, up in Brooklyn College, to learn about the nuances, the technicalities, the skill set of an actor. I was doing this all kind of as a side gig while I was still employed in baseball. And then we, uh, 
we had a change in ownership. And oddly enough, I was away. I had been working out with Charlie Sheen in Houston. Uh, he was preparing to go do Major League Two. And I met some friends of his who invited me to come do Angels in the Outfield over here in Los Angeles and in Oakland, which I came in. I did that. During that time, the Houston Astros got sold. The management changed. And the guy that took over, a man named Bob Watson, who was a friend of mine, he called me up. He said, hey, little boy, don't, uh, don't worry about coming back too soon. You know, enjoy yourself. I was like, uh-oh. So I came back. He said, look, you've got this interest, and I know baseball will take up your life. And if you don't pursue this now, you won't. So I'm not firing you, but I'm not rehiring you. And uh, so he kicked me out of the window, and I was pissed. But his voice kept echoing in my ear when the pod race called San Diego and said, you want to come to work down here? And I was, which is the greatest place in the world. They're not very good. They are this year, but they hadn't, they weren't when I got off of the job and I, I declined, I declined it to, to give this a shot. And thankfully things have worked out. So I've really had really two great, amazing, lucky opportunities in life in, in passion and baseball and in acting. And um, I, I feel very fortunate, but I also feel very aware that you have to make yourself available for those opportunities, which I've, I've always tried to do. So love baseball. The two don't have a lot of similarities other than um, the passion. And that w- that's what I would tell or say to anyone about anything, collecting stamps or podcasting or films or movies, you know, let that passion burn. Ask yourself every morning, what must I, I must, and then follow it up with why. And then everything will fall into place. Know your must, know your why, and then everything will come right, come around. It'll, it'll, it'll happen. Nice. Well, I'm glad you made the transition over to uh, movies and, and film because I'm not I'm not much of a baseball watcher, so I might not have ever heard of Luke. Oh, cool. Well, I'm glad I was able to we really get out there in, in, in the Rob Zombie, Quentin Tarantino, Mark Young world. Uh, you know, there's a point where I've been killed by some really credible villains. <laughs> you know, uh, Otis Driftwood and the Devil's Rejects cuts my face off. Uh you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, my head gets blown off. Halloween, uh, I get, you know, Michael Myers crushes my skull against uh, against the wall. So I feel like I should put a coffee table book out called All of Me. Why not take All of Me, you know, <laughs> uh, as, as death scenes in, in films. I've actually died with Michael Bean in a scene. And he dies in everything, right? So if I've died, he actually killed me before he died. <laughs> so we well, look damn good doing it man so keep up the great work and uh, thank you thank you Casey. where they can find limbo and uh your twitter instagram yeah i would love for everyone to see limbo because i think it's it's it, we're living limbo right now we're all in a little bit of a purgatory straight state during this uh this situation this pause in life we're having that uh that i want everyone to be safe and sane through we're going to get through this so limbo's out there on um itunes it's on apple tv i believe uh, i think you can go to your voodoo and red box you can order it on dvd you can find lou temple actor on twitter 
uh, Lou Temple Instagram. I do a storytelling Patreon called the Texican where, you know, you can pitch your story at me and we'll, we'll get together and we'll write your script for the oh, novel for like five, five bucks. You can join the subscription and you guys get engaged in a, in storytelling and we'll build your script and, and get our, our fellow Texans engaged in ideas and building. I put a lot of behind the scenes stuff that I do, whether it be, on films or auditions or, uh, you know, different stories about different things. So that's out there on the Texican. IMDB keeps me up, keeps you up on all of our, uh, our activities. And, uh, and you guys are great for having me. Thanks y'all. Thank you, Lou. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'll say it was, it was, I feel a little naked without my facial hair. You too. Well groomed, resplendent hair follicles. <laughs> <laughs> well, you we have beard jokes. My my thing with the mustache was the old. You know, I, it was first told to me probably eight years ago by a twelve year old, maybe ten year old. Actually, I must ask you a question, but I'll shave it for later. So I always use that one. But are there any new ones? I don't know. Any. One that I don't think I can say. <laughs> I think I think there was an I think there was an addendum to that. I must ask you a question. I'll shave it for later. It's hairy, hairy, important. Yeah. Oh, that's a nice add-on. Just tell us, Bill. I'll cut it. Nope, nope. We'll save that for the X-rated <laughs> podcast that we're not going to start. You should tell Richard. He'll tell it. Yeah, he would tell it. He'll make it seem like family hour. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thanks again, Lou. This was a lot Thank of fun, you. man. We appreciate Thank you. You, you guys do well, and, and uh, go support the fight and fills in, in writing – and enjoy your summer. I know it's pretty. It's probably a little warm. You probably got a little humidity going. Yeah. 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 Quite a bit. Well, that's that's good for your gardens. <laughs> good point. That's about all it's good for. Otherwise known as your beards, your facial hair. It's good for your skin. Yeah. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. Thanks Thank for having you. Me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.